The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. I'm Melissa Lee, and this is Fast Money. Tonight's trader lineup, Guy Dami, Tim Seymour, Brian Kelly, who will join us shortly, and James McDonald. Tonight on Fast, we've got earnings alerts on Nordstrom, Toll Brothers, and Zscaler, all three stocks on the move right now on results. We'll dive into the after-hours action straight ahead. Plus, Ford gearing up for a big investor day tomorrow. The stock has been on an absolute tear this year. The three key things Ford investors need to watch heading into tomorrow's event. And later, we are trading the chips, how the desk is setting up for NVIDIA going into earnings. But we start off with a sugar high in housing. Home sales pulling back in April. But because prices are so hot, the median price for a new home soaring 20% last month. That is the biggest annual increase in 33 years. And it's not just new homes. The red-hot housing market reinforced today by the Case-Shiller Index, showing a 13% gain in all home prices nationwide. Strong demand, short supply, historically low mortgage rates, all driving prices higher. And check out the move in the builders today. Names like Toll Brothers, DR Horton, Lennar, Pulte Group, all moving higher during the session. So is this sugar high going to turn into a sugar crash? Tim, weigh in. Look, I, I think the, the year-over-year comps don't make a lot of sense in terms of prices. Uh, I think the affordability has been an issue for the housing market for a long time. Uh, I think some of the, the migration trends that we've seen of COVID are, are ones that may unwind. But uh, look, I, you know, do we have a housing bubble? This is a question I get asked a lot. I was just involved in a conversation earlier today about this. Um, investment in, in single-family homes is is overall for the sector in other words building out and the amount of supply uh, we're still underinvested in this country um, the fact that these numbers are volatile on a monthly data series and again month to month uh, from covid where obviously coming out of covid there is enormous pent-up demand uh, rates are as you said i mean have been a driver for demand um, and and the affordability dynamics and the inventory dynamics are things that existed well before. Yeah. I, I would just look at, you know, annual home sales, 750,000 is where we were pre-COVID. Um, I think we're probably going to settle back into that range. And I think it's fine. Guy, what do you think? I mean, Tim makes a very good point, And this is what this is the point that a lot of people will make. And that is that it was a tight market before the pandemic. And so if we go back to pre-pandemic levels, still a tight market. No, Tim makes a great point. And when BK finally gets here, if he jets in from Nantucket or wherever he's <laughs> currently residing, he's probably going to be on my side of things. But listen, all that might be true. Then you have to ask yourself, what the, what's the Fed doing hanging around at $120 billion a month, right? I mean, that's really the question you have to ask yourself. You yeah. just said 30-year highs in terms of prices. I mean, listen, consumer confidence numbers, we had maybe a little, a little soft. But overall, in the aggregate, on the margins, as they say, these housing, the has housing data has been ridiculously. So my pushback would be, I agree with you, Tim. Why is the Fed still hanging around? So what's going to wind up happening when they do yes. wind up taking their foot off the gas or stepping back? That's really the question that I think I know the answer to, but I don't think anybody really does. All right, James, I'm going to go to you because um, obviously the Fed has made its entrance into this discussion. I was waiting. It took us three and a half minutes or so to really get into this as to why the Fed is still buying MBS, mortgage-backed securities, in this kind of market. 
um, especially as rates have really proved to be capped. I mean, think back just, was it last week or two weeks ago, when we had really hot inflation data. We did not breach that March high. And right now we're about 20 basis points away from that March high. It is incredible the, the ceiling that rates have been under. Right. The stresses that happened in 2008 were catastrophic. And we were at national security risk with our banking system. And the Fed came together. They put computer system, pro- computer system programs together with economists uh, and looked at every metric that could indicate risk to our economy. And they said never again would they let that happen. And coming into this pandemic, the threat of economic disaster was so high that unprecedented actions were taken and unprecedented reassurance that all actions necessary to continue uh, have been reasserted again and again and again. And where we see these distortions uh, in economic data, particularly the housing, whether it's rates and or inventory and or demand, we see the implications of that policy. We also have the practical fact that there was a, a cessation on evictions, there was a cessation in the moratorium uh, on the normal flow of defaults. We've seen interest rates make more money available, more mortgages available. Uh, and then we've seen a supply shock. And so you have all of these disparate data coming together to create these incredible numbers. And I think the Fed is going to continue to be vigilant about what can happen because the risk was so high. But at the ah. same time, the question uh, was, you know, will this sugar high come down crashing? Of course it will. Um, but at that point, it'll be a normalization of prices. Really? Because all the things that you said, James, all the very intelligent, smart things. That you, and by the way, gold star for the use of cessation. Tim points me to a market <laughs> that is going to have a put underneath it. The famous Fed put here in the housing market, well entrenched. So why not bet with this trend? Why not bet that this sugar high continues if you have the Fed supporting this market? Well, I think betting uh, to subsectors below kind of home builders is worth uh, investing in. And, and I think we've seen that. And I think the multiples of a couple of the companies, whether they be uh, those that make HVAC systems or supply uh, engineering or the Home Depots or the Lowe's, you know, you have to pick your spots or the Williams-Sonoma or in, in Restoration Hardware's Restoration Hardware up another 4% today. But I, I guess I see dynamics here that, uh, like, if the Fed steps in, they're going to step in too far, probably. And it's a big if. And I think we're all very skeptical. And we wonder why they're buying mortgage backs. Having said all that, um, when they step in, they're going to keep rates low by squashing out growth. And it's going to still be a great time to go buy a home and buy more home than you could afford. And, and demand is still going to be there. And, and some of this migration that's secular isn't going to change. Some of this was COVID. Some of it, frankly, wasn't. So investing in the housing sector, when I don't think we have uh, a bubble and I don't think there's a lot of speculation, anything close to 2008, I, I, I say stay there. Don't chase it, but stay there. Yeah. And, and by the way, consumers are feeling pretty good about the economy, Guy, and they're feeling pretty good about the labor market. I mean, those who have jobs look at that labor market and think this market is good. My salary, chances are, is going to go up because there aren't enough workers out there to fill the gaps. Or I've kept my job through the pandemic, so I'm sitting pretty here. Um, and so, you know, you have that dynamic, too, in terms of the consumers going to buy that house feeling, you know, I can I can afford the one with the pool <laughs> right now. That's ex- listen, that's exactly right. And, and to your point about wages going up. Yeah, we've seen that. We've actually talked about it on the show last couple of weeks that although the po- politicians politicians will debate uh, minimum wage, the market's effectively doing it for them, by the way. We've seen four major companies over the last month mm-hmm. or so announce that they're raising minimum wage. And you, that to me is a final piece to the inflation puzzle, wage inflation, and you're seeing it. But to get back to 
you know, the bad behavior. It's interesting. You know, I, I was not a Walenda brother or a family member, but they were one of the few guys and gals that did things without a net, and it led to disastrous outcomes. Now, everybody does things with a net, and you know you take risks when you know you have that net underneath you. The same way, if you know that Fed net is underneath you, by definition, you're going to do things you probably shouldn't do if that net wasn't there. So I, I'm, so I'm always apprehensive when the Fed's in the picture. It took me a minute, a full minute, to remember who the yeah, Walenda brothers were. So in case the audience doesn't know or doesn't remember, it's no, the, it's a, it's the family know. with the high wire acts, right? They do tricks and things like right. that. I mean, very dangerous stuff. And so that was your point about the safety nets. Um, James McDonald, in the housing market, do you like the housing plays, despite what you said about the sugar high coming down eventually? Well, we have to see the activity and, and, and respect it. There are more realtors now than there are houses available, and that's an incredible statistic. And if you talk to people in the home buying process or in the home selling process, uh, there's incredible energy around paying whatever it takes to get deals done. Uh, and I think that there's a little bit of extra money in people's pockets based on all the things that we know from uh, the COVID-induced uh, uh, government actions. And so I think there could be a continuation here. I think the supply shock on the, on the builder's front, um, there is a backlog that is highest since 1988, I believe, where there's a home that's been sold, but it's waiting to be constructed. Uh, is that a word, constructed? I believe it is. It's late in the day for me, sorry. Uh, but I think it can continue, obviously. There's been so much um, uh, discussion around this. Momentum is a real thing. Yeah. Is constructed uh, a word, Mel? Constructed sure is a word, right? I'll okay. consult with my Georgetown. <laughs> um, Bre- you oh, threw me off saying my comments were smart before. So now well, I the cessation was a gold, definitely gold star um, <laughs> kind of word. Um, in terms of the Fed, though, pulling out, what if we what if we there are lots of things that the Fed is even buying to this day or owns on its balance sheet to this day that you might wonder why? Why the heck is the Fed still in these asset classes? Things like corporate bonds. Was there ever a problem in the corporate bond market? No. MBS. And they may say that's preventive. Treasuries. What happens? Let's let's go down that path for just a minute before we move on to Toll Brothers, because they have earnings out. What happens if the Fed starts to pull back? Is the market reaction much stronger just just because markets are prone to knee-jerk reactions. And the reality is, is that if they, do, if they do stop purchasing, the impact is really not that great. I don't know. Tim, what do you think? Well, the, the Fed was stepping in seemingly to support credit markets as well, especially right. the illiquid ones that, that tend to seize up and liquidity dynamics. Uh, and then they, those trickle through even to money markets and commercial paper. So you know, that was their argument. Um, but but again, you know, going in and buying Apple paper um, when Apple's been able to rush to market and by the way, with the best balance sheet out there. So we're not attacking Apple, but but a lot of it hasn't really made sense. And I, I think, you know, the issues for credit markets overall, look, we, we get uh, back to whatever normalized is and maybe we get to mid 2022 when I, I, I believe some of the sugar high of a double barreled stimulus plan and throwing money out the window. Yeah, I kind of said that uh, on on in terms of you know, what some of the stimulus has been, I think you're going to get to a place where people are going to focus on credit markets again. And, and so back to the Fed put and the uh, Lenda's and, you know, whoever else guy can bring from Barnum and Bailey Circus. I, I think you've got a case here where credit markets uh, without the Fed, without supporting MBS and without supporting junk. Remember our forays into buying junk ETFs and that conversation we can't believe we had a year ago. That is a time to worry. We're not there yet. In fact, I think we're nine months away from that conversation. Mm. Guy, what do you think? 
What is that? What was that fancy word that James used to begin with a C, right? Cessation or something. A very like, good word. That's great. You know, there, there's a word that sounds like it's succession. Say to yourself, what? What are you? Why are you bringing that up? Well, you know what happened five days ago. I know you know, and I'm going to educate the audience to the extent that they didn't hear this or see this. Five days ago, Morgan Stanley named, I think, co- two co-presidents. And why do I bring that up? Well, magically, and I don't think it's all that magic, by the way. I don't think I don't really believe in coincidence. James Gorman, the CEO, the current CEO of Morgan Stanley, put out a note, his opinion, um, and he's he's going against Morgan Stanley. But he says, you know what? He thinks the Fed's going to actually taper the back half of this year. And oh, by the way, we're going to see rate hikes next year. So he's about six months to nine months ahead of Morgan Stanley. Why do I mention that? Well, I think he believes it. Otherwise, he wouldn't say it. I also think that he's auditioning for his next job. And you can call me crazy, but I don't think it's coincidence that five days ago they named co-presidents and today he came out with that. So for for him to say that, he's a smart man. He knows what he's doing. He believes what he's saying. I agree with him. And he's also looking for his, I think he's looking for his exit. And I don't know if the Walendas worked for Ringling Brothers, but maybe... (laughs) Maybe he's looking for his next act, Tim. <laughs> way to tie it all together. Jerome Powell's term, by the way, expires next year. Um, let's stick with housing. Uh, I mentioned Toll Brothers. Its earnings are out. The home builder slightly higher in the after hours following the print. Let's get to Diana Olick, who's got all the details. Hey, Diana. Hey, Melissa. Yeah, it was a nice beat for the luxury home builder on both revenue and EPS. But the headline numbers are really in the signed contracts. The value of net contracts up 97 percent year over year and the number of contracts up 85 percent. Both of these are record highs for toll. As for pricing, even the luxury builder isn't having an issue. CEO Doug Yearly said with strong demand and constrained industry wide supply, we have continued to raise prices in excess of cost increases while setting all time records for contracts and backlogs in both units and dollars and exceeding our guidance on nearly every metric. He also said they are continuing to see strong demand in the market, even as the economy opens up and perhaps fewer people are fleeing large cities. The toll price point is in the $800,000 range and rising. This is where we're seeing the bulk of the sales activity right now as entry-level buyers are really being priced out of this market. Melissa. Wow. Diana, thank you. Diana Olick. Uh, Tim, what do you make of the builders here? Well, you know, one of the things they're talking about is their margin improvement. And there's a tailwind here, although we spend a lot of time talking about lumber prices and copper prices at all time highs. So um, you you have to wonder where some of this is going to run into the story for the home builders. Not only is uh, this a story of pent up demand and the size of the contracts and and their average selling price, but also one where I I think you do have to measure input costs, which are, are going to peak in, in with this demand. So um, they talk about a higher margin profile. Should home builders trade at a, at a higher multiple toll at 16 times trailing? Uh, not terribly expensive, although relative to itself, um, it is. So, I mean, this is something you have to think about. All right. Coming up, we've got more earnings coming your way. Check out shares of Nordstrom and Zscaler. Both stocks on the move in the after hours on results. We'll dive into the trades. Plus, the keys to Ford. The company revving up for its investor day will break down the three key things every investor needs to watch. All that and much more when Fast Money returns. You seek the key. But first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today.
What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Welcome back to Fast Money. We've got an earnings alert on Nordstrom, the retailer falling in after hours uh, trading following the print. Courtney Reagan joins us with the latest. Courtney. Hi there, Melissa. So mixed results from Nordstrom, but clear stark movement, as you can see there in the after hours in response. The department store does report a wider than expected loss on stronger than expected revenues, which grew 44 percent from the same period last year. But remember, stores were closed most of the quarter. If you compare it to first quarter of 2019, so that's a non-pandemic quarter, revenues we're down 13%. Nordstrom does reaffirm its full year forecast. That's with revenue growth of 25%, uh, slightly outpacing consensus of 23% growth. The department store is one of the retailers that has long had strong online sales, pandemic or not. And so it's notable that digital sales grew 23% compared to last quarter that Q1 quarter, again, at the beginning of the pandemic when so much shopping was done online. That means digital sales made up 46% of total sales in the most recent quarter, which is pretty impressive and one of the highest in retail. Gross profit increased markedly from last year due to lower markdowns and higher sales volume, but fell compared to the first quarter of 2019. Again, a non-pandemic quarter. On the conference call, CEO Eric Nordstrom is talking about how he's encouraged in trends that he's seeing in southern-based stores that open sooner. And he anticipates that the northern stores will get to the same spot. He's starting to see that happen. Eric Nordstrom also said the department store is seeing categories that were out of favor in the pandemic starting to come back, like dresses and handbags. Not necessarily back to work clothing, but items for travel and events like weddings. Melissa? Wow. Courtney, thank you. And I love your uh, mini dress Thanks. barometer, too. That's also a good one in terms of measuring the reopening. Brian Kelly joins us on the phone. He's had some gremlins with his shot. But, Brian, what do you think about these? Uh, I mean, I think it's interesting. People are buying things to go out, you know, not yeah. just to be inside in sweats. <laughs> well, right. I mean, I'm, I'm a little surprised that there, that there was weakness. But, I mean, the, the revenues were great, right? And so, yeah, I mean, and particularly when you talk about Nordstrom's customer, they tend to be um, the more on the more affluent end. So let's say they may need to go back to an office, so they might need to buy a pair of slacks or something. Which you know, only it was only a couple of weeks ago that I wore my slacks for the first time in a while. I figured people would be buying more stuff, um, and I think that continues as we start to ramp up this reopening. James McDonald, what do you think of Nordstrom? This is a weak chart if you look at a five or ten year chart. And, you know, obviously we had the shock of the pandemic and a big comeback. Stock up is is up a ton since earlier last year from the COVID shock. Uh, but we still haven't approached pre-pandemic levels as so many other sectors, so many of the retailers have done. Uh, if you shop in a Nordstrom, as BK said, it's an affluent play. This is a trend that might get picked up on the online space. They have some momentum there. 
but I think it's a weak equity to hold in a retail basket with so many other retailers having pre-pandemic performance that's actually been accelerated from all online sales uh, and accretive to the stock price. Stock price is still down from pre-pandemic lows. The surge in apparel that we will see once the country reopens, Guy, has that already been anticipated in many of these stocks, do you think, or no? You know, I would say that I think the, the, the knee-jerk answer is yes. But then I look at this and say, you know, maybe not. And I understand what James is saying 100%. But I go back and look at where Nordstrom's really took that next leg higher back in December. It was from $32, give or take. And you had that huge move up to, I think, 45 And now the subsequent sell-off. But you're looking through these, you parse through these numbers, and you look at their inventories. Inventories are about 31%. And you say, wait a second, year over year, that's a tremendous number. Then you see sales growth of close to 45%. So I start looking and say, you know what, next quarter their margins are going to be a lot better, even better than they were this quarter. And I think you buy this stock around 32 and a half, 33 against that December takeoff level. So I actually think Nordstrom's gets really interesting around these levels. All right, let's stick with earnings here. Check out the big after hours move in shares of Zscaler. We'll dive into that trade straight ahead. But up next, Ford is in focus ahead of the automaker's highly anticipated investor day. The three things every investor needs to watch straight ahead. And later, we are counting down to NVIDIA earnings. The chip stock has been on fire over the past week. How are traders are setting up for that report when Fast Money returns? With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, Quick strategic thinking is crucial, and with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown, and through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Welcome back to Fast Money. We're watching shares of Ford, the company revving up for its annual investor day. It's first since CEO Jim Farley took the helm in October. Let's get to Phil Lebeau for what to expect. Hey, Phil. Hey, Melissa. You know, it's been about five years since Ford had a capital markets day, a day where they set out true projections in terms of where they wanted to take the company over the next several years. You didn't hear anything from previous CEO Jim Hackett. And Jim Farley, since October, has said, look, we need to put out definitive targets and let this, the Wall Street community know exactly where we want to take this company. So here's what we can expect tomorrow. First of all, the chip issue will get some questions. That's not going to be a focus of Ford in terms of giving an update, but there's no doubt that Wall Street analysts will be asking about it. What do they say in terms of is this the worst of uh, the chip shortage or does it drag into the third quarter? Autonomous and commercial vehicle plants. This will be a huge part of this, especially the commercial vehicle side of the equation. Remember, that's a big part of the business, especially in Europe. But the focus, the primary focus, Ford's EV investment and strategy. Do they have a couple of platforms? How many vehicles do they expect to roll out over the next several years? And more importantly, what type of profit margin do they expect to get off of those electric vehicles? The F-150 Lightning last week supercharged excitement regarding Ford's EV plan. They've already racked up 44,000 F-150 Lightning reservations. So there is clearly anticipation building in the market that this could be a strong vehicle. But keep in mind, the EV market is going to be much more competitive over the next couple of years as it moves up to a million vehicles sold. Look at it. This year, there are 39, 39 EV models for sale. 
go out to the market in 2025, there will be 125 EV models for sale. So the EV competition is coming. Ford expects to be part of that. It is investing $22 billion between now and 2025. Do we get an update? Does Jim Farley say, look, we know that we're already investing $22 billion plus $7 billion in autonomous vehicles. Maybe they increase the amount of money that they plan to commit over the next couple of years. So the benchmarks will be what people are focused on, Melissa. Um, and Phil, Ford, correct me if I'm wrong, really increased that $22 billion number from almost nothing, I want to say. Um, and so how should investors... Yeah, it was considerably less. Considerably less. How should investors think about that $22 billion number com- com- compared excuse me, to GM which is spending, what, 27 or something and, and getting 30? I think GM is, at, GM, is at, GM is at 29. Now, Ford is, is investing dramatically more money over the next couple of years, uh, and it's already committed. I think some of that, you know, I don't know the exact amount of the $22 billion that has already been committed, but a good chunk has already been committed, which is why some people are saying, does Jim Farley come out and say, okay, it's 22 currently through 2025. We think now maybe we have to up it to $26 billion, $27 billion. Right. That's just hypothetical numbers I'm throwing out there. Or does he say, look, we're comfortable with what we're committing right now. We can always increase it down the road. But you really do want to focus on the benchmarks that they lay out tomorrow. Yep. Phil, thank you, as always. Phil LeBeau in Chicago. Um, how should we think about these two? Should we compare them head, head on? Uh, Tim, I'm going to go to you because you're a GM shareholder. Given the run in Ford, can Ford come out and say, you know, we're going to increase it to, to match GM, and by 2025 we'll have X, Y, and Z number, but GM is going to have, what, 30, I believe it is? 30 EVs by 2025. So, yeah, and I, and I think GM is, is a, a head start in a broader platform mm-hmm. into EV, hydrogen fuel cell, and, and autonomous. Uh, I mean, again, you know, GM's been working on autonomous for a long time. Um, whereas I think Ford, uh, first of all, part of the story is just operationally. And if we played Would You Rather, got, uh, Mel, sometimes we do this on this show, you, you'd, you'd rather GM from an operational perspective over Ford for the last 20 years. Um, Ford has cleaned up their act as a, as a you know, as a profitable auto company by getting rid of unprofitable businesses. But to the point for tomorrow, companies don't have investor days um, unless they have good news. Okay, <laughs> um, there's a lot of excitement here. The F-150 is, is there's nothing close to it. And, and when they can bring this car around forty thousand dollars, there's nothing close to it. So, again, I think Ford's focus on EV and actually uh, a set of vehicles, but some of the most uh, sought after cars in North America uh, first I think that's an argument for Ford maybe trading at a higher multiple, even though GM is the one I am longer and and the one that I think is a lot more upside. Certainly, that's a good point in terms of not having an investor day unless you have good news. Typically, that is the case. But typically, stocks don't go into investor days up 12 percent the previous week. Um, Brian Kelly, I'm going to go out to you and I will formally invoke would you rather instead of Tim's like back door. <laughs> would you rather would you rather Ford here or GM here knowing that Ford shares under Jim Farley have almost doubled? Yeah, well, I would much rather GM at this point in time. And that's not necessarily a knock against Ford. Everything that Tim said, I completely agree with. I think that makes a very good point. But this has been an anticipatory rally, in my view. And GM just looked like more spring-loaded for a move higher. And I look at the price action in Ford today, it wasn't that great. And everybody knows you only have a investor or a capital meeting, whatever they're calling it, if there's going to be good news. So uh, bad news comes out on a Friday night, good news comes out during the week. So for me, I would rather be in GM to play the same theme. Yeah. Uh, James, how do you look at Ford? 
versus GM. I like Why Ford not? as I like Ford as a stock better than GM because I think you know culturally uh, they've got the two platforms and you know the Mustang platform that's getting moved onto the EV space. I think you're getting a lot of sales there. I think there's going to be a lot of buzz. The adoption of electric vehicles. We saw the chart earlier for. Uh, projected growth in the sales. I think that's going to trickle into American manufacturers from the traditional names, not some of the new upstarts. And I think Ford's got an edge there. A uh, little be be a little bit more culturally powerful uh, to get a lift in this stock. I like it at a 12 PE. You know, Ford's up 45% versus Tesla down 30% year to date, but it's 150th of the PE level there. And so I think as a stock, um, as in a cultural attract, and I think Ford is a, a is what I would rather buy here. Just quickly, guys. And drive. Yeah, yeah, and drive. <laughs> Just quickly, Guy, in terms of the conversation we had at the start of the show and a sugar high, I would think that that would apply somewhat to this market as well, the car market. I mean, a lot of the same dynamics apply to the auto market now in terms of pent up demand during the, you know, people wanted to buy cars during the pandemic, the Fed's actions driving rates lower so people can borrow money, et cetera, et cetera. So what do you say about autos here? No, no question about it. And my pushback would be you're 100 percent right, except that valuation still doesn't make sense, ah. despite the fact that you're probably, you know, I mean, look at Ford. I mean, they're going to earn a dollar. Tim, Tim can speak to this. I mean, they're going to earn a dollar 70. I mean, they're trading at less. Listen, you should give a 10 multiple for Ford and you got a 17 and a half dollar stock or thereabouts. And they deserve it of much higher than just 10. And we've done the same math equation with General Motors. So in the would you rather game. I'll go with Ford, Jim Farley, for obvious reasons. You can Google and understand why. Um, but I think Ford's just too <laughs> cheap to push back on your sugar high thing. That's code for Georgetown grad, right? Am I right? You know it. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know all right. It. You're Coming so up. in my head. It's, it's actually frightening. <laughs> Coming up, shares of Zscaler on the move in a big way after a earnings report. We're digging into the numbers, bringing you the trade. Plus, CNBC is unveiling our list of companies that will disrupt business as we know it. Fintech company Plaid. Making the cut. We'll talk to the CEO when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. We've got an earnings alert on Zscaler, the stock rallying in the after-hour session. Let's get to Josh Lipton with the details. Hey, Josh. So, Melissa, let's check out Zscaler moving sharply higher here in the after hours. Remember, heading into this report, it actually came under some pressure. It was down about 10 percent over the past three months. It was about 25 percent off that all-time high. Though, of course, keep in mind, remarkable run for this one in 2020, surging more than 300 percent. As for those results, beating on the bottom and top, the Q4 EPS outlook was in line, though revenue above estimates. And for the year, EPS and revenue both above the street's forecast. Also, a quick acquisition here we want to mention. Zscaler saying is acquiring a company called Smokescreen. No price disclosed here, but Zscaler referencing actually the colonial pipeline attack as a reason companies they say are going to need the kind of tech that Smokescreen provides to thwart such attacks in the future. Melissa, back to you. Josh, thanks. Uh, Josh Lipton, Zscaler up 8% right now. Guy, you mentioned this one earlier today, actually. Yeah, and it's one we talked about, I think, we, I think, and you'll correct me, I'm sure, if I'm wrong, but we had the Jeffries analyst on. We were talking cybersecurity stocks a couple of weeks ago. We brought this up, and Dan eviscerated me on this name in terms of price to sales, and he's right. I mean, this stock makes no sense on that metric, but then you start to look at the scarcity factor in this space and the fact that, oh, by the way, look at their operating margins. It came in at 13% when the street was expecting 7%. So this is a company that's operating better scarcity value in the space, in my opinion, and I think it's going to continue to grind higher. So I like the name, and I do think you're going to see some analysts raise their price targets on the back of this 
tomorrow. So I stay with ZS despite the move in the after hours. The acquisition specifically to protect against threats such as the hack of the Colonial Pipeline. I mean, Tim, <laughs> that seems like magical words to, a, to an investor when, you, when that was such a high profile hack. It attacked America's infrastructure and it really showed the impact a hack could have on infrastructure in the U.S. Yeah. And, and again, so Z Ayler has been uh, also bolting on acquisitions, the smokescreen acquisition uh, for sure. And, and, and security is a top priority. And, and if you uh, go into C-suites, the anxiety here is let's spend to to at least show that we're doing the right thing, whether we have a coherent strategy or not. Um, is the point the, the key to this stock is we're all we're all talking about the right thing. It's the valuation. It's not the, the 40 to 50 percent annual bookings growth. They're going to show again um, and, and the nature of this business. But is the market paying uh, this type of a multiple on price to sales, not price to earnings? Um, for a company like this. And so I think you're also seeing some downgrades of the company. Guy's right. These are great numbers uh, and you could see some follow through. But, you know, BMO just put a $200 target down from 240 in the last couple of days. All right. Coming up, fintech company Plaid making CNBC's annual Disruptor 50 list. We're talking to CEO Zach Parrott on everything from crypto to the future of banking. You won't want to miss this one. And as CNBC continues to celebrate Asian-American Pacific Islander Heritage Month at all May, here's our own Deirdre Bosa sharing her experience. My mom grew up in a small fishing village in Taiwan. She moved to Canada at the age of 16 with no English, no job, and barely any money. So I really watched her overcome a number of challenges as an immigrant, chartering an interracial marriage, and really providing so much for my three brothers and I. She eventually ran for public office in Canada, and she embraced her heritage. And that really inspired me to begin my own career as a journalist. Welcome back to Fast Money. CNBC releasing its ninth annual Disruptor 50 list, which singles out innovators on the road to becoming the next generation of great public companies. CNBC's Julia Borson takes a look at one industry dominating this year's list. Julia. Well, Melissa, that industry is fintech. There are 11 fintech companies on the list. That's more than any other category. And one of those companies is Robinhood at number one on the list. Now, it reportedly has more than 20 million users, though it hasn't officially reported a number since the 13 million it disclosed a year ago. We are expecting its public S1 filing as it goes on its road to an IPO soon. Now, Robinhood is joined by some other consumer-facing services, Chime, Nubank in Latin America, Tala, which offers microloans in India and other emerging markets, and Ripple, which is about global payments. And then there are even more B2B fintechs on the list. Stripe, which is the most highly valued company on the Disruptor 50, Checkout.com and Flutterwave, all three of those offer online payment solutions, while Marketa issues digital credit cards and Brax is a tool to power small businesses' expense management. This all reflects a surge of VC funding into fintechs. $46 billion has been invested globally just so far this year. Already, that's more than the $43 billion that was invested into fintechs in all of 2020. And that VC investment is following consumers. A majority of consumers accelerated their adoption of fintech solutions as a result of COVID lockdowns. And only 20% of consumers say they think that traditional financial institutions 
are evolving fast enough to keep up with their needs. This according to a recent Bloomberg Capital report. Now, we do expect fintech to dominate the next wave of disruptor IPOs, starting with Marketa, which already filed its public X1. And guys, we do expect an IPO there soon. You can find out more about the list and more about Robinhood. I wrote an article explaining why it's in the number one spot on CNBC.com. All right. We'll look for that. Thank you, Julia. Now let's bring in one of the fintechs on the list. Coming in at number 39 is Plaid, which is shaking up everything from banking to investing in crypto. Zach Perret is the Plaid CEO. Zach, congratulations on making it to the Disruptor 50. Welcome to Fast Money. Thank you so much for having me. We are very excited to be included on the list and and excited to see the strong showing of fintech companies this year. What is the biggest part of the of the incumbent financial institution industry right now, financial services industry that you are disrupting? Well, first, I have to push back just a little bit on the word disruption. Uh, We think what's happening in financial services is more of an evolution towards digital experiences for consumers. Um, I think if you look at the history of the financial system, it clearly wasn't built for a world that envisioned the Internet. Um, And when we started Plaid in 2012, we were focused on the goal of helping banks and non-banks build better digital financial products that consumers can use in in the way that they want to use it. So on a phone, on on, on a laptop, something like that. Um, what we build is the infrastructure that allows consumers to securely connect their financial information to the applications that they use to manage their money. So if you've ever used Venmo to pay friends or Acorns to invest or SoFi to get a loan, uh, these are all the services that we power. So you're not in a consumer-facing business, but you are sort of the pipes that the consumer will use in order to access their other financial accounts online or digitally. Exactly. So as consumers use more digital financial products, as they, they go through through COVID and suddenly can't go into a bank branch anymore, um, they need a way for these, these financial products to talk to each other. So if I have a bank account over here and an, and, and an investment account over there, I need a way to transfer funds between them. I need a way to, to, to connect them. And that connectivity layer, that infrastructure that connects the two, that's what Plot builds. This is an area in, in finance that has largely gone so far um, not very heavily regulated. You know, regulation or regulatory forces focus on the incumbent banks. Some say that this is unfair. And I'm wondering if you think this could be sort of an overhang in your industry if, if Congress decides to come in and regulate, for instance, how you use data, how you use, collect data, et cetera. You know, that's a, that's a great question in an area that, that I actually personally spend a lot of my time um, as you might imagine, a lot of the, the rules and regulations for the financial services industry were, were written for a world that was before this, this really heavy use of digital finance, this really heavy use of the Internet. And as we continue to, to evolve towards a future um, uh, that, that, that continues to embrace the Internet, um, I'm excited for a lot of the regulations to continue to evolve. We, frankly, have been very, very active in, in engaging with D.C., engaging with the regulators, having really open conversations to try to educate them as they think about putting rules in place. And I, I'm very excited for kind of a continued push towards increased consumer privacy, increased consumer control. Um, we actually launched a product uh, earlier this year that allows a consumer to fully control and understand all of the data that's being connected on their behalf to all the accounts. As consumers are using more digital financial products, we felt it was very important that consumers are able to actually control all of that on the back end. Right. Julia was mentioning all the fintech IPOs that she would be anticipating coming down the pipe. And I'm wondering if you envision yourself being public either through a straight up IPO, a direct listing, uh, an acquisition by a publicly traded company like a J.P. Morgan. I mean, Jamie Dimon said specifically on a call not that long ago that incumbent banks should be scared, you know, what lists of disruptors like a plaid and you got singled out. So, you know, does your future maybe, you know, is your future perhaps a part of a bigger incumbent bank? Well, that's a, that's a great question. And, and you know, as, as we look towards the future, 
um, we see kind of a continued growth in Plaid. We continue to expect to be an independent company. And uh, certainly one day that we hope that that means a, a public debut that no, no, though not any time on the immediate horizon. Um, as for as for, for JP Morgan and many of the biggest banks, one thing that we've actually seen is that, you know, three of the top five banks have announced partnerships with Plaid over the past year. We see the big banks themselves as really leaning into and driving the narrative forward on this concept of a digitization of financial services. And so I fully expect that many of the largest banks will be uh, both big users of Plaid and, and, and big, uh, big drivers of this increased digitization that we're likely to see over the coming years. Zach, great to hear from you. Thanks again. Thank Zach Gray, the CEO of Plaid, number 39 on this year's CNBC Disruptor 50 list. James McDonald, how do you think about fintech? There are lots of publicly traded ways to play this, even if you are waiting for Plaid to go public eventually. <laughs> right. It's an exciting space, and we've seen a real market impact as in the stock market because of fintech's power in enabling individual investors to easily and seamlessly access trading opportunities in real time and leveraging other properties on the internet and communicating and driving activity in the market that we've never seen before. And so fintech has not only been an enabler of services of traditional banking and traditional finance apps, but it's also empowered a new generation of behaviors that have impacted the market. And it's very powerful in the banks. I started my career in a bank and, you know, it was hard just to get a checking account update uh, at the teller station and in an office. And now we have individuals interacting in so many ways with their financial institutions. This space is going to continue. It's no accident that all that money is flowing in there. Uh, and these technologies are going to continue to be powerful. To the earlier concept, though, about the impact that happened on the pipeline, I worry about security. Uh, if we've got tens and tens of millions of people enabled uh, through these devices, there's a lot of potential leaks. There's a lot of potential security risks. Uh, and that can really uh, negatively impact the banking sector and the confidence in the markets. All right. For the full Disruptor 50 list, you can head on over to CNBC.com. Coming up, shares of NVIDIA have been on a tear heading into earnings, but what are options traders expecting when the chip giant reports tomorrow? We dive into the pits for some answers. That's next. Welcome back. Jim has got a big interview with the Commerce Secretary that is coming up at the top of the hour on Mad Money. You won't want to miss that. Right, we're gearing up for NVIDIA earnings tomorrow after the bell. The stock has been on a tear for the past week. Let's get to Mike Coe for the setup. Hey, Mike. Hi there. So the options markets in NVIDIA, we've seen calls comfortably outpacing puts for the last 20 days. We saw that again today, calls outpacing puts by about 1.75 to 1. And right now the options market is implying a move of about 5% by week's end after they report earnings higher or lower. That's consistent with the 5% that the stock has moved over the course of the last eight quarters. The most active options were the 650 calls that expire at the end of the week. Over 6,800 of those traded for an average of about $6. And buyers of those calls are obviously betting that the stock is going to be higher. Notably, the highs for the stock this year were just under 650. We saw that in mid-April. Seems like they're targeting that level. Um, Guy, your thoughts on NVIDIA? I agree. Actually, we talked about this last week. The setup into earnings was really good. And I agree with Mike. I think the high was actually like 648.57 or thereabouts. But Mike nailed it. And I think that's what it's going to test post earnings. It makes a lot of sense. You had that big flush in the end of April to the downside. Stock held where it should have. And now it's going to trade. I think it's going to challenge those previous all-time highs. So I'm with them. And I think the stock continues to trade higher. Tim? 
Look, uh, I, the stock split is no reason fundamentally to get behind a stock. Boy, we do this all the time on this show, but I, I do think it's going to have an impact. But more importantly, you know, things that we don't often talk about with NVIDIA, their exposure autonomous, AI, in addition to gaming and, and you know, some of the more leading edge places that we know they dominate right now in graphics. So um, this is one high multiple stock I'm OK with. I actually think it's breaking out after doing nothing for a long time. BK, Brian Kelly, quick thoughts on NVDA. Yeah, I think it, listen, this thing is above 650. I mean, 700 is in sight. Uh, it, this is just how mentality works. I know Tim was saying about stock splits. Uh, human beings want to go to the next kind of $100 level. And with the tailwind of the fundamentals this way, I think this thing's off to the races. All right. Mike Coe, thanks for that. For more options action, be sure to tune into the full show. That's Friday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Up next, we've got your final trades. Welcome back. We've got a big update on CNBC's first ever NFT sale. The auction for the token commemorating Mark Haynes, the late great Mark Haynes, calling the March 2009 market bottom is up to 12 and a half Ether, or about $32,000. There is still time, though, to bid. Head to mintable.app slash CNBC. Proceeds go to Autism Speaks and the Council for Economic Education. The auction, by the way, closes tomorrow at 10.30 a.m. Eastern Time. So go and bid if you're interested. If you don't want to participate in the auction, there are a limited number of tokens up for sale as well. We've already sold 27 $1,000 tokens, only 23 left. Again, head to mintable.app slash CNBC. By the way, this is a carbon neutral event, which I know Guy was very was wondering. Um, but again, this is a, a memorable moment in CNBC history that you can own. Time for the final trade. Let's go around the horn. Tim Seymour. Guys, that's exciting stuff. The the 18 percent pullback in gold from last summer is over and the move higher for 9 percent is also exciting. Uh, in the GDX, you get two and a half times uh, effectively the beta on owning gold, which I think continues to move higher and about to test 1900. BK on the phone. Yeah, for me, it's going to be square. Take a look at that one. $200 seems to be support. Looks like it wants to go higher. James McDonald. Ford Motor Company, only worth 2% that of which Tesla is, but they've got a better fast car coming in this Mustang. Guy Dami. I'm all about carbon neutrality, as you pointed out, Mel. I'm, I thank you for that. Uh, Nordstrom's, I think it actually might trade higher tomorrow. All right. Thanks for watching Fast to See back here tomorrow at 5 for more Fast Money. Meantime, Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. 